0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 36. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 36, brought to you by our friends over at gearsluts.com. Back for another Another great interview. And today's guest is going to be Mr. Warren Hewitt. Warren is known for his work with uh, Ace Freely, Mark Broussard, Trevor Hall, uh, The Fray. He's done The Fray's first several records. Uh, he works with Jack Douglas, so therefore he has worked with Aerosmith as well. He's got a pretty long list of, uh, of clients that he's worked with, which you can check out at warrenhewitt.com, and that's H-U-A-R-T, Hewitt. Yeah, we had a great conversation. And Warren is a super, super passionate guy about audio. I have, uh, you know, I come across a lot of passionate people, but Warren is definitely, he is so into it. And it's really, really enjoyable to speak with him about it. And and it really rubs off on you. And he also runs the Produce Like a Pro uh, web series, which is a super informational site for, or informational set of videos for just about anybody, uh, pro and uh, new users alike. So, make sure you check that out. I've included a link for Produce Like a Pro in the video section of the WCA Recommends site or or page, I should say. So make sure you check that out. So Warren, coming up, Warren Hewart. I want to talk a little bit about insurance today. I had a friend who just lost a, uh, a guitar amp and a guitar out of the back of his car in the parking lot of a rehearsal place in Oakland, California this past weekend. We were rehearsing... Finished up a rehearsal one by one. All the members of the uh, the group started to leave, and you know, long story short, we were saying our goodbyes in the parking lot. And I looked over at uh, my buddy Sean's back window, and it was broken. And I said, "Sean, when did that happen?" And he looked over and just, you know, face in palm, "Oh shit!" And somebody pulled up to the edge of the parking lot, waited for the parking lot to be free, walked over, smashed the window, and took it away. So, unfortunately he didn't have uh insurance on it and his car insurance wouldn't pay for it because uh the deductible uh well the deductible was higher than the value of the gear and it just wasn't going to work out. So it's essentially gone. So that brings me to just a little bit of a recommendation, insurance. Get a hold of it. You know, we've mentioned on the show many times and this is we have no financial affiliation with Joe whatsoever, but Joe if you Google Joe Montarello, that's M-O-N-T-A-R-E-L-L-O and look up the, uh, uh, the recording studio insurance program that he runs. It's, uh, through Capital Bauer Insurance and it does all the basic coverage found in, in regular business insurance, but it also covers, um, Uh, computer viruses, equipment breakdown coverage, coverage for borrowed or rented gear, theft by any party, electrical disturbances, coverage for damaged media, data recovery, coverage for gear in transit and away from the studio, flood and earthquake coverage available in most states, of course. And uh, it's, it's just tailored towards studios. And the great thing is, is that it's You don't have to provide a detailed list of everything to Joe. If I recall how it worked for me when I had my studio, you just have a blanket set of coverage that covers X amount of dollars. So if you have a theft or you have something get destroyed, you just call Joe up and say, Hey, Joe, here's what we got. Here's, you know, all the documentation for that piece of gear and boom, you get reimbursed and it's pretty cool. So insurance, it's not a fun thing to spend money on. Honestly, there's a list of uh, things that fall into that category when it comes to running any kind of recording business. To me, it's mic stands and cables and all the cabling associated with patch bays and patch bays for that matter. To me, that's not fun stuff. Microphones, studio monitors, mixing consoles, control surfaces, all that stuff is fun because you get to use it, you know, you know, it's like with mic stands, it's like, what are you going to put your microphone on? It's You have to have it, right? Well, with insurance, it's one of those things you hope you don't have to use. And man, you are so relieved when, if you do have to use it, it's there for you. So check it out. Um, I don't know a lot of studio insurance programs out there. I only know about Joe Montorello, and I only know about his, you know, his studio insurance program. And he's a great guy to deal with. He shows up at trade shows. And I tell you, it was like meeting a rock star actually, when I met him the first time I was like, Oh, you're Joe. Oh man. Pleasure to meet you. So super cool guy, easy to talk to on the phone. And you know, he's a no nonsense kind of guy, but treats people very fairly. So there you go. That's my, uh, ringing endorsement for somebody who, uh, is serving a lot of us, Joe Montarello over at, uh, The studio insurance program. So um, there we go. That's it for uh, today's intro. Let's get into our wonderful interview with Mr. Warren Hewitt here on the Working Class Audio podcast. (laughs) Pleasure to meet you virtually. Yes, good to meet you too, man. Always always strange to meet somebody over Skype. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate your time being here. Thank you. I have a confession to make. I didn't know who you were and you weren't on my radar, but for some reason, I started following your activity on Facebook, and I don't recall when that was and how that happened. But I just—I would see these posts, and I'd be like, "Oh, he seems like an interesting guy to ch- talk to. I should—I should chat with him." Right. And uh, then I thought, "Well, oh, well, here's your opportunity. Just reach out right now and ask him, and he'll either do it or he won't." So, well, I, you're from—I appreciate it. Well, you're so you're from Crookham. I'm from Crookham Village in uh, in Hampshire. You got here by way of a band you were in, I believe, called Star 69. That's right. I was in a band called
1: Star 69, um, and we came over to record an album in the mid to late 90s And uh, with Don Smith, actually.
0: I think, and this is going to be the small world part of this, I think you and I played a show together in England when I was in a band on Warner Brothers called Seven Day Diary, because I recall having a conversation with a woman in a band called Star 69. Was there a woman in your band? Yeah, it was a girl singer, yeah. And I remember her saying, we're having a problem because there was another Star 69, was there not, in uh, the US?
1: Yeah, I I, don't, I can't remember when we found out about that. I, I thought we found out about that when we were in America, but maybe it was right near the end just before we moved. Mm-hmm. or. we came back because we did when we moved to america we also came back to england to play some shows so you may have it may have been when we came back to england to play shows after our first single came out so that's probably when it was yeah yeah there was a band in new york that had put out a release under the name star 69 and we would put out a release in england it was either at the same time or we were first but There was some kind of lawyer ease thing about, well, one's released only in England, one's released only in America. I don't know. Who knows? All All I remember is we had to give them a lot of money. They were happy to take money to drop the name, put it that way. (laughs)
0: interesting interesting okay isn't
1: that the american way give me a big check and i'll change my mind about anything
0: (laughs) that that is the american way is it not yeah i mean and you know you coming from the other side of the pond i mean you have a more probably objective opinion and and can see the uh, the hypocrisy when it exists probably far easier than we can ourselves
1: i agree with that statement but
0: at the same time i've been
1: here nearly 20 years i consider Mm -hmm. myself quite american and uh I love England and I love America, but the hypocrisy exists in both countries. <laughs> That's true.
0: That's true. And everywhere uh, else in the world. On your Wikipedia page, what caught my attention was: is you you got here. It seems you kind of jumped into. I think you jumped into a uh, a partnership in a studio or rehearsal facility rather quickly. Is that correct?
1: Uh, kind of. I think I actually arrived here. Um, wow, it's going to be twenty years very soon um i arrived here in october 95 a mm. fresh face 20 something year old i was always the guy in the band i'd had studios in england i ran a studio in england with a 24 track one inch machine remember the msr 24s the task MS- oh that's right 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 see i'm i get a feeling you and i are probably cut from a very similar cloth i didn't didn't grow up through a studio system
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know i'm it's interesting that you, you you don't know who I am, and I understand, even though I've been involved in so many big albums, I think that's because I, I'm not part of a sort of more of that traditional boys' club of sort of engineers and producers in L.A. that all, you know, assisted at studios and worked with this engineer or that producer. And that's fine, but, you know, they All of the guys that usually get interviewed for this kind of stuff, you know, assisted that engineer who hired them for this project. And they're a very tight group of guys, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and I didn't grow up like that. I was a musician. I was a guitar player. I for me, without getting too much off topic, I feel like where the music industry is at the moment is like God sent. I love it. Yeah. I love where the music industry is at the moment, and tell me why that is. Because I don't think the music industry ha- was ever, ever
0: a meritocracy. Do you? Yeah, you're like you know, it, you know, it. I guess it depends on on what period of time we're talking about. So, well, now I
1: think I think that obviously you know major labels are very concerned with making money out of pop acts that still sell a lot of records, and I completely relate and understand that. But outside of the pop R and B kind of hip hop world, where and probably you know big country acts. Um, for the rest of us that don't live in like the super slick pop world, this is a great time to be doing music because now it's a great leveler. Now actually being really good at your job gets you independent artists. They come to guys like you and I to work because they know we can get a great result. And having a famous name associated
0: with something doesn't help you in that world. The only thing that really matters is the music. I'm going to hopefully not go too far off topic either here, but I almost feel like we're in this new period where, like, if you watch the, the, for example, the US presidential elections, it seems that at this moment in time, Donald Trump is leading the Republican field and Bernie Sanders seems to be making major headway over Hillary Clinton. And these are two people, regardless of your thoughts on their views, they're two people that seem to be speaking uh, kind of not anti establishment, but very uh, different truths. And it seems the people who have typically come from the old school world of establishment are kind of falling behind. And I kind of, I'm making a parallel here to this new time in the record business where the establishment isn't always leading the pack there are independent acts that have that are doing well without the establishment yeah i I agree
1: I, i i think that um what i liked about making music in england and what i like about making music in america are two very different things if you're a band in england or an artist in england and you do you do this great recording with your friend at the local studio and you come into a record label and you play the recording. At least this is my experience having been in that world and having had record deals. If they love it and it's great, they put it out. It gets put out and it, it keeps innovation. You know, look at all the sort of different musical innovations that came from, from England from the 60s right through to sort of, you know, have always been very innovative. And I love that about England. Now, if in America, if, I, if you take an artist, say you do a demo with a band from down the street and you do something cutting edge and unique, you take it to a record label, record label goes, oh, that's really good, I like that. Well, my friend John's going to reproduce it and my other friend Mark is going to remix it and then this other thing. And all that uniqueness and that energy that you put into it gets sucked out of it. I, I've experienced that, we all have. So the, the thing that you're touching on, I think, is really helping the music industry outside of the, the traditional label system because now younger, or not even so much younger, but... New talents are coming forward because it's just based on their ability to make great music, and I love that. I mean, what's what's to hate about that? You know, the traditional kind of barriers are being broken down with the same sort of five or six guys making every single record. Is they, you know, they're used to sustaining these four hundred thousand dollar six week projects where they're they're pocketing all that kind of money, and those projects don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, but they were also used to having a massive amount of staff and being very divorced from the process. And now you're getting guys coming up um, that um, are musicians and songwriters and singers and engineers and producers combined mm-hmm. that can really bring great talent to, a, you know, to, to a, a session. I have kids that work for me and I tell all of them, I'm like, I'm really impressed that you can engineer and you know Pro Tools, but you better get an ear. Because, you know, there's not enough money to just have you and five other guys working on this project. If somebody says to you, can you take me to the G minor? Know what a G minor is. Because that's what's going to help you differentiate. You know, once again, the reason why I was thinking about this specifically is um, on the Produce Like a Pro YouTube channel that I do, last month I did a mix competition. So I took a song that I did with a young artist, like a 20-year-old artist, and I let everybody download it for a month and mix it. And then semi mixes and Phoenix Audio, you know, very graciously gave me um, an EQ to give away to the mix that I would choose. I cannot believe how overwhelming the amount of mixes I got. I got hundreds (laughs) and hundreds and hundreds of mixes. So it's taken me a month of listening to mixes. I'm still listening to the mixes because I'm not. I'm not going to be dismissive. I'm trying to even if I'm giving like one or two paragraph response to people. I want to critique them and I want them to feel like I value their work because. These are, these are guys and girls that have probably spent several hours working on this track to win an EQ. And they also, I promised them I would listen to their mix and critique it. I've committed myself quite heavily there. So here I am Man. every night for an hour or two listening to mixes. Wow. But you know what? I have this five-point system from zero to five. I haven't had a mix that I've marked below three, and I've got 20 mixes so far that I've given a 4.75 to. And I'm telling you, there are a good 10 or 20% of these mixes that are as good as anybody else out there by people that you and I have never heard of living in whatever, whether it be Los Angeles, Portugal, Bahrain, Spain, Germany. There are so many talented people out there. And these mixes are slamming. They're either, guys are either coming in with loud, hit you over the head mixes or mixes with loads of depth. I mean, these are really, really good mixes. The average is fantastic. So- now how would a guy like I don't know Sean in you know Wisconsin
0: ever get noticed especially when the t- the talent pool that he's our hypothetical Sean is dealing with is probably quite small and yeah. he's probably not as highly valued as maybe his talent would be in other places Exactly I think I think so I think for me this is the, the music industry where it is is such
1: a wonderful place for up-and-coming people because they're really just going to be judged on their talents. For me, I I want to just encourage people for the ability to work with others, you know, understand that, um, you know, being talented is a really huge part of it, but we need to be able to relate to other people and bring performances out of them and really bring everything that we can to bear to the process to really get the best results because I think with that aligned with talent, you can succeed. And there's... You know, there's a way for so many people to make a living now. I think the people that decry the death of the music industry are the people that were used to very inflated budgets and studios that were charging a couple of thousand dollars a day and engineers that were making $1,500 a day and producers that were making a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They're the ones that are complaining about the music industry dying all day long. We go online and we hear of these guys all going, mm-hmm. music industry is dying. It's dying for you. It's dying for you that want to make $2 million a year Yes, I agree. But for for up and coming guys that maybe want to make fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year with a home studio, and buy a house in Wisconsin, this is a great time. It it's, really well, is. It, it is a it is a working class time. It's a working class time, which is another reason why I liked the title. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I was kind of bummed that you went for it first, because <laughs> <laughs> I I went to produce like a pro for my one, and I thought. I was just trying to say, look, you know, let's make it so everybody can learn all the tricks that professionals use. I really want everybody to understand because we all hear things in a different way. So even if I show you or you show me your tricks and tips, it doesn't mean that we're going to sound like the same person. We're just going to interpret it differently. So I think sharing knowledge is a wonderful thing. And I love to be able to give back because that's how I learned. I learned from Don Smith. I learned from Dave Jordan. I learned from Jack Douglas from, you know, being a musician and then an engineer and, and you know, working with great, talented people and picking up stuff from them. And Sometimes it was uh, them directly telling me something, uh, but a lot of the time it's just kind of osmosis, like being around it, you know, being around these wonderfully talented people that are very giving in, in, uh, in their information. So all I want to do is be a mentor like that to other people that were, men- you know, in the way that people mentored me. The, 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 the Frey record that
0: you did, you yes. did their, 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 their second record? Yeah, I worked on their first and their second. Their first and their second. Okay. Some of that stuff I do know, and that stuff sounds great, by the way. Thank you. I, so that came out, what, in 2000? 99? No, the uh, first one came out, I think, 2004,
1: 2005, it got big. And then the second one came out 2008 in through 2009. Okay.
0: OK. And would, would you say that that is like that kind of got you in making what I would call, you know, grown up records like that's, I mean, I know you've been making records for a long time, but that those Frey records, didn't you win a Grammy for that or, or get be nominated? Got, uh, yeah, we got nominated four times
1: for those. Um, yeah. I, you know what it did, though? It, it, it opened the doors for more independent artists to pay attention to me. You know, I love The Fray and you know Ben the drummer is a very good friend of mine. In fact, they're all good friends of mine but Ben and I talk relatively frequently, especially about gear because he loves gear. And I am probably not going to be too off target by saying this, but there's nothing cool about The Fray. They're not a cool band. Mm-hmm. So it didn't get me like every major label knocking down my door going, "We have to" even though they were selling millions and millions of records. It didn't it wasn't a sort of a calling card for like the elite it was a great way to open the door for independent artists because, you know what we're doing? We're talking what you're talking about, populist politics. We're going back to that. It's the same thing. So people love what I did and what I do, but the hierarchy weren't, like, jumping over themselves to go, oh, you know, I need to make records that sound like Defray. They weren't that kind of band. They weren't a cool band. They didn't, like they weren't the hip band of that week you know they, they they were just a. if you go to like itunes and put in the fray you know where they do the thing where they go users also bought <laughs> right it'll be like rihanna and maroon five huh it's not going to be like if you did um a kings of leon record where it's going to be like users also bought and then five hipster bands right you know and oh i see what you're saying
0: completely
1: it really helped me with real people, um, real people related because real people were buying the music in droves and real fans who had bands came to me. However, when I did the second Augustana record, I think I've got more work from that than any other record. Mm-hmm. That was a real labor of love. You know, We spent nearly six weeks in pre-production with just you know, sitting in the room with Dan working on the songs before we even went into to record. And we made the album really quickly in about three weeks start to finish. Um, So it's very simple an approach. And then when we mixed, I mixed with uh, um, Jim Scott and I went up to his studio every day and sat with him and we mixed the record together and kept it very similar to the roughs and didn't really go too crazy. So that record gets me quite a lot of work because musicians that love open sounding, you know, real records, appreciate. But when that record came out in like 2009, 2008, 2009, records didn't sound like that. They, they sounded like these production-made records, you know, by all of the, the main producers of the time that were very, you know, they had three Pro Tools rigs going, you know, a guy was like cutting drums, the hard drive would go over to the next room, the guy would chop up the drums, the drums would come in, they'd do the bass overdub, that would go back and get edited in time to the grid, and then that would come in, you know. That's how records were being made in the in the mid late two thousands, as we know, especially at the tail end of you know emo and stuff like that. Um, so uh, people like the Augustana record because I don't think there's a single gridded or heavily edited drum on it anywhere. You know,
0: I wanted to bring up the the question of album credits in this period of time that we live in, and especially these these Fray records that we're talking about, I wonder if one of the reasons I didn't initially know who you were is because of a lack of album credits. Do you have a perspective on, on album credits in the day and age that we live in now? Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's going to be very interesting. I, I don't know, because I, I'm not a
1: kid anymore. I do I, My perspective is when I was 9, 10, 11 when I first discovered music and I got obsessed at like nine years old with music, I would buy a record and I'd flip it over in the days of vinyl and just sit there and study every single thing. I would find out who engineered, who second engineered, you know, I didn't know what, half of what these things meant, you know, who produced, who the band members were, what studio it was. You know, I lived in a little village. There was studios around, but I was nine. So I didn't know, know what that meant, but I scan, scanned those credits. And, You know, My favorite bands were like Queen and ELO, and then I got into punk rock, and then I got into the Beatles and the Stones and Zeppelin, all of Pink Floyd, all the stuff that we do to get well-rounded in music. And I looked and searched out for that information. I just wanted to know all about those kind of bands. And so I suppose, to answer your question, it's annoying that, yes, you buy something off iTunes, unless you download the booklet, you're not going to know. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, I wonder if that argument, as much as I agree with it, I wonder if the argument only, I just feel like if you're a real fan of music, I think my point is, and you love it, you seek the information out. If you're a guy or a girl who's obsessed with a new band, you are going to download the booklet. You're going to mm-hmm. buy the deluxe version. You're going to seek out every single thing and you are going to know that stuff. And I think that that is available for the true fanatic. My brother and my sister, who are younger than me, that were fans of music, they had vinyl as well. They had my record collection. I don't remember either of them scanning the credit lists. I was a musical fanatic. I scanned the credit list from nine years old. I could tell you, you know, who Jeff Emmerich was. Right.
0: So, my brother and sister liked the Beatles, but they don't even know who George Martin is. I always use my wife as an example because, like, you know, to highlight your example, she's not one who reads through the credits. She just right. buys the music. Pops a CD in, and she might even lose the cover, and the CDs will wind up in a stack. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it's like for some people, you know, some people are so obsessed with sports, they know all the players, they know where spring training takes place for whatever, wherever. (laughs) I'm not a big, huge sports fan, so, you know, baseball teams do spring training, they know where that's at, they go to that those of us in music, and I, I realize that some people in music also pay attention to sports, but sure. a lot of us in music, tr- that music is our sport. And we pay attention to the stats and to the people, and we want to learn about the new people pe- coming in and out and what's right. going on.
1: No, I think that's a good point. I, I, it's, and I agree with you. It's, if you. If you love what you do, whether you be into sports, into guitars, into cars. I mean, I love cars, so we could talk cars for hours, but I don't know everything about cars, but I'd like to. Um, <laughs> I just don't have the time. I'm like you, I have kids. Um, <laughs> I work and I hold my baby. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know
1: what I mean? You have a family?
0: Yes. A kid or kids? Kids, I have two. And I, I have two as well. Tell me about your work-life balance and how that, how you make that work. I think you. it's
1: I think it's difficult, but not impossible. You know, I work at many, many different studios. I also, as you were touching on, I also own or co-own a couple of different things, So uh, you know, different places to work at. My studio here, which you can see, unfortunately, nobody else can, but, you know, you can, is insanely well equipped. It's 20 years worth of graft. Uh, wow, look
0: at, oh, yeah. Uh, what is SSL? Yes, yeah, an SSL 4000
1: 40 okay. channel. So I have an SSL 40 channel console. I have... Poltec EQs, you know, I have all the mics that you want. I have, as you can see, a lot of guitars. And you
0: have a nice big couch.
1: And I have a nice big couch for the artist (laughs) to fall asleep on. That's right. Um, And I also have a drum room. I don't know if you can see it there. I have a drum room. Oh. Oh, yeah. With a 64 Ludwig set up in it. And I have a piano. And so essentially, I do and I can and I have made many, many records here. You know, I did Josh Raden here, Mark Broussard here. Trevor Hall's last two albums here, Um, you know, um, Ace Freely. I did Ace Freely's last album. I co-produced and mixed it. Ace Slash was in the other day playing guitar with Ace on some tracks. You know, I get to do all these things and I just do them where I live. So, so my long answer is it's taken me a long time of working very, very hard, minimum 12, most, most of the time, even still 15 hour days. Um, It's just what we have to do, you know, in this business. And, my solution is to work as close to home as possible. Um, I see. You know, so my commute time is taken down. You know, tra- traveling an hour to and from the studio is not a, is not a reality for me. Okay. Um, I have not even half an hour, 20 minutes. You know, you've got kids that got to get to school. You know how it is, all that stuff.
0: That's why I was running behind for today. My, I had to get my kids off to this summer camp, and I was like, guys, we got to get going. I have to, I have to talk to, to Warren here. So.
1: Yeah, my, my son's first
0: day back at school today. Oh. So we had all that
1: this morning, yeah. Um, oh, th-
0: and that's that's chaotic, man.
1: Yeah, it's chaotic. Luckily, my wife is a superstar. I can't take anything away from her. She's a, she's insanely on top of stuff. Um, and I think that's another answer to your question is like, you know, you just have to find people in your life, in all you know, whether it, the, the person that you marry and the person, the people that you employ that are also, you know, go-getters and relatively self-sufficient. I mean, with staff, I've had quite a few over the years. But the successful ones, I've had two guys work for me long term that have both gone on to be very successful in their careers. And both of them lasted with me for several years. And they're also musicians and engineers and producers and songwriters. And that's why they, they like me, are able to make a living doing this because they're multi-talented. And um, those are the
0: kind of people I like to have around me. I hate to use the term jack of all trades, but it seems like that's what you have to do. It seems like the kids coming up today, many of them are multi-talented because it's not just Pro Tools, you know, that they know, but they they know how to use, you know, Ableton and all the other programs out there.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I'm going to interrupt you for one second because I think this is important. Um, I really do. Knowing your DAW is just you have to. It's just like that. That is not even a skill set anymore. It's a necessity. Being really good at your DAW, whether it's Ableton, Reason, Logic, Studio One, Pro Tools, Cubase, Nuendo, whichever one of those or any other new one it might be, if you're not good at it, then it's that's the prerequisite.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know I, that. So it's kind of like the jack of all trades thing. I, like you're you're hinting at it's not. That's that's just got to be something you do. I, I I mean I I get frustrated watching even the kids at work for me, like moving the mouse around, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I, it, if, somebody opens up a session, like I have a guy that works for me and the tab to transient isn't highlighted. I'm just like, how are you working? Right. How <laughs> are <laughs> you working? <laughs> if you don't have tab to transient on and Pro Tools, you're not really working because when I'm recording, I'm listening to the singer, but when a guitar part goes past and it's, the groove is terrible, it's just a little bit late or a little bit too early or whatever. I'm like, tap to the front of that transient, boom, move it to move it just back a little bit, you know. And then the next pass, I'll listen and see if it was good. But I've done that move while I'm recording the vocal because I've heard it and I fixed it. So to me, I'm like, how are you working? Because you know what I mean? If you're working in Pro Tools and you're, and you're not able to maneuver around while stuff is going on, that's what I mean. It's that second nature thing. You have to be able to go, oh, that snare is late and just be able to you know, hear it go by, and I'm recording a guitar part that somebody else is playing, and just tap to the front of that transient, chop it out, tug it back a little bit. Next
0: time I play down it, does it feel good? You know what I mean? It's like that's to me to be second nature. And when you sit down and you hit tab expecting it to be there, and it's off, and it shoots to the end of the session, you're like, "God damn it!" I just look at the en- the engineer that was working
1: on the track and just like, "What have you been doing?" I mean, <laughs> I have been if I was tracking all day, the song would feel amazing at the end, regardless, because those little tiny little fixes, and I'm not talking gridding stuff. Yeah. I'm just talking about moving a bass note here, moving a tambourine hit back, you know, just occasional little things. It's like. If you're not doing that while you're working, that's what I'm saying, it has to be second nature. And it has to be heard, not seen. I like that. It's like when you play an instrument, you know, I am not. I have no ego about this, I'm a really great guitar player. You can go and see me play guitar. I'm a great guitar player. I I pride myself on having a high level of musicianship. I also still, to this day, do ear training exercises nearly every day. Because to me, I like to hear a chord sequence. I don't have the time, I work a lot. So if I'm working on a song with you as an artist, I need to be working on the song, you know, coaxing performances out of you. And then if I have to redo a guitar part, I need to just go in there, plug in the, you know, put a mic in front of my acoustic guitar and play the song. I don't want to Mm -hmm. listen to it five times and chart it out. I need to have an ear to go in and perform. And you know what I mean? So to me, it's like a prerequisite, certain things. And the first prerequisite for me is know your DAW. Just know it. You know, if you're a kid or anybody listening to this, just know that and It's not a badge of honor like I'm a great Pro Tools engineer. So what? As you're pointing out, there's 15-year-old kids that are great Pro Tools engineers. Oh, yeah. So be a great Pro Tools engineer, great Logic engineer, great Studio One, great UMN, whatever it is that your DAW is. Be really good at it. Now
0: you can make music. Right. You have to have have these things mastered naturally to, to make it work. It's almost like, I'm going to make an assumption here, I've never seen you play guitar, but you probably don't look at your hands when you play guitar. Is that correct? No, not at all. I mean, maybe if I'm trying to play some stupid
1: piece, you know, I was working with Billy Sheehan the other day and he we, he jokingly did one of those kind of 80s, I'm showing this on camera, of course you can't see it, <laughs> one of those kind of 80s claw kind of nine fret kind of stretches. And he said, he goes, if you have to do one of these, and then he pl- pulls the handshape, he goes which you will need in naught point not one's one of songs ever written you know and it's the whole point is it's like you know be really great at your instrument as well um but you know also be aware that you know most music is not about virtuosity in technique it's about musicality so i think that developing a really great ear it would be the second most important thing for me i would be learning my daw then i'd be developing my You know, I was an art student. I'm a typical English musician. I went to art college because I didn't know what to do with myself. My father's a painter. He's an artist. So I think for a minute, I thought I was going to be an artist. And I remember going to art college and there was a book that was out at the time called Ways of Seeing by a guy called David Berger. And he talked about, you know, how to see art, how to understand, how how to relate. And, you know, if you're going to be a good artist, you need to understand how to see things, how to interpret them. I think if you can be a great great in music, um, you need to interpret that stuff. You need to be able to hear chord changes. You need to be able to hear melody and harmony. You know, most of the guys that I work with now um, are great engineers, great producers, great mixers, great musicians, great songwriters, and that is why they're becoming successful. They don't have one skill set. They have a lot of skill sets. And it's, it's a, pretty much a metaphor for the music industry. The music industry, for the first time ever for me, is one industry. It was always We always said the music industry. But then there was like the gear manufacturers. And there was the publishers. And then there was the record companies. And then mm. there was the struggling artists, the musicians. There's all these different things. And now it's just one big thing. Because if I um, want to get my product out there, you know, and I'm an artist. If a guitar company is gonna sponsor me and put me in their ads, you know, it used to be the record companies used to look down on gear manufacturers like, oh, you can't have Joe Famous, the artist, you know, you can have this lesser art. You know, they would they would they stopped these things from happening. Now there's this sort of symbiotic thing that's happening because everybody it has to work together. If we're mm-hmm. going to be, if we're going to make a success out of this, and you know, I I use certain pieces of gear. I only endorse things that I use on a daily basis, um, and to me, that's important. That I endorse things that I love, and that the people that I endorse also maybe put me in their ads. And then the same for my artists. You know, if my artist likes a particular guitar, it would be really great if they use that artist in the ad, and vice versa. We're sort of living this world now, which is great, where. We are all in this together in the music industry, and we should all be looking after each other.
0: Hey, I want to take a minute and just mention uh, our friends over at SonarWorks.com. Their whole calibration software thing has been working out for me really well. It may work for you, not sure, but there is a free trial. Make sure you go over to SonarWorks.com and download the free trial. There's two components to it. You can actually do the the headphone calibration or you can do the speaker calibration. If you do the speaker calibration for your uh, control room, then you're gonna need some type of measurement mic. Now, they sell within their package their own measurement mic, but of course you can acquire one from a friend just like I did to do the free trial. And I gotta say, it's very eye-opening if you've got a room that is not well-treated or even if you have a room that is treated with a ton of money, it's worth checking out just to see like where the problems are. That's the speaker component. And of course, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the whole thing, the way it works is you basically put... You know, you make your measurement, then you take that measurement into a plugin that you put on the back end of your listening chain in your DAW, so you're just monitoring through it. You're not actually printing through it. And what it does is it just flattens out your system so that you're making all your mixing decisions, your critical decisions, listening to a flat system, and that's kind of important. And the headphone calibration part is, is they actually spend their time coming up with Calibrated headphone settings for all the major brands of headphones out there, from Focal to AKG to Audio Technica. Many of the popular brands are on their store. If you're mixing on headphones, the headphone calibration portion of that is is pretty cool. So if you go over there, you can also uh, buy a set of headphones uh, with their software and have them shipped to you, or you can just buy the software itself if you've already got a pair of headphones, which many of us do. We've already got a pair of headphones that we listen to and love. There's just a little information about that. Make sure you go to sonarworks.com. And if you are going to buy, make sure when you go buy over there, you type in uh, WCA works as a discount code, and that'll get you $33 or 33 euros off because we've made a deal with them to uh, give you a little discount. Now that discount right now is in short supply. I think uh, a couple of you have already taken advantage of that. And I think that we have just a few more chances left to use that. I think uh, we have, I think there was, they made accommodations for 10 people. So I think there's eight, eight, eight codes left, but we are working on, uh, we're going to talk to Sonarworks and see if we can get a more uh, permanent uh, discount code in in there for you. And that's it. So uh, let's, uh, let's get back here. Let's uh, continue our conversation here with Warren. If the artist comes out with a record, you need to get it in you need to get the related story to the different people. So the technical people, the recording people, let's get the story in Sound On Sound or a recording magazine. The people that are interested in pop culture, maybe we can do an article on the lead singer in People magazine or I don't know, some little blurb there. But it's like you you kind of have to take advantage of the promotional opportunities where they exist. I agree. I agree. Um, and funny thing is, is shortly after you and I emailed, I of course saw that microphone ad that you're in. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, they sent. They uh, somebody sent me. I have. I haven't got the magazine yet. Uh, I can't remember if it's in mix or sound on sound. It's in mix. Uh, it's in mix. Okay. It's in the new mix. That's right. Um, yeah, but yeah. see, see, Luid
1: Audio without and I'm not just. We're obviously not trying to. Uh, talk about different manufacturers. I'm not trying to endorse something. But why do I like Ludi Audio? I'll tell you why I like Ludi Audio, because it's a bunch of guys that were at AKG, AKG, a couple of guys. They left to start their own company. It's Austrian design, so it's great mics. And they make them in China, and then they ship them back to Austria, and then they test them so they're all of a certain quality. So basically, the advantage is, let's be honest, they make them in China at a fraction of the cost, but they're offering right. microphones at a fraction of the cost. They have the same quality control as their competitors. So to me, it's it's you and me. It's you and me. They're, that that microphone is me. It's me in a box. You know what I mean? It's I relate to it. It's a high quality product at a fraction of a cost that you know, doesn't carry the big sticker name on the front that can right. d- charge two to three times the amount. But it sounds just as good. So it goes back to what we've been talking about the whole time. It's like, do you want to spend three times, four times as much money to get the same result? Or do you want to Look around now and see in this great level of the music industry, like I was saying, with these several hundred mix- mixes that I'm getting, some of these mixes, a good percentage of them, are absolutely amazing. And trust me, I've worked with every major mixer in the business, and I know a good mix, and you know a good mix. These are great mixes. And so here we have now is a microphone that's a fraction of a cost, and you put it in front of your acoustic guitar or vocal, and I love the way it sounds. But I also happen to have a C12 sitting in my light collection. I also have a U47, a U48, a U67, I have RCAs. I know good microphones. And this just does something for me that I put in front and it sounds fantastic. So whether it be, you know, that microphone manufacturer or uh, or you know, I kind of like Yamaha guitars because they're kind of this sort of poor man's entry-level guitar. I have a Pacifica guitar that I use on everything because it has Seymour Duncan pickups in it and sounds great. It retails at $699. That's me again. There's the Warren guitar. You know what I mean? I relate to it. I plug it in. I go, this sounds amazing. I also have tons of Les Pauls. As you can see, I have like six Les Pauls. I'm a huge Les Paul fanatic. But I'm not a snob. To me, if it sounds great, it sounds great. And that's the sort of philosophy that that I took from England, where that sort of innovation, where there was all these new artists coming out, was because it wasn't being stifled by the business side of it, where Everybody had to line each other's pockets, you know, John had to do it and Fred had to mix it and this had Mm -hmm. to do it. They just let the good music come out. They let the the you know the you got Sam Smith winning Grammys, you know, with songwriters and producers that nobody's ever heard of over here.
0: You know That's true. That's it's once again, it's the the traditional establishment is is not the same.
1: Yeah. And And it's it's great. So it's great. It's coming back. It's a great leveler. It's also great. I mean, look at what you're doing. You're doing this wonderful thing where you're connecting people. You're allowing people to hear what's going on in the industry and giving them this message of like, you can do this too. And that's to me is like the best message. And that's to me for my YouTube channel, the only, that's the number one thing is like, yeah, I have some nice gear and I love having the nice gear, but it's taken me 20 years to build this up. Would I do it again now? hell no. I wouldn't need to. I would (laughs) not need to. I could make a record and I do make records with just my, I have behind my, I have this BAE 1028, which I like. I have a 1073 I've had for years, but I like the 1028 because there's a few more EQ points. 90% of my recording goes through that one BAE mic pre. Because after I've done my drums on my 12 channel cadet console, which I got for peanuts, and we had to spend a fortune rebuilding. But after I've done that, I do an electric guitar overdub with that mic pre. I do an acoustic guitar (laughs) overdub with the mic pre. I might try a 312 for a different flavor on something. But ultimately, between that and the Spectrasonics compressor I've got, 90% of what I do is on a handful of pieces of equipment. So it's great to have all these different flavors, and I do use them. But most of the time, I'm using... handful of things and we did that even when we were making records in big studios we're in a big studio and we've got a beautiful neve console in front of us they're all the same mic pre so it doesn't matter whether the guitar player was playing through channel 12 or channel 27 it was still the same 1073 or 1020 uh you know 1081 or 1084 it's still the same mic pre so now with this world that we live in where you have a a laptop setup and a nice IO and you UAD makes Apollo which is sounds great and is so inexpensive and comes I've, with all those plugins.
0: I've got one right over here. Yeah.
1: So a UAD Apollo, one nice mic pre, an SM57 and a half decent condenser, you're making music. And if you need to do some do some drums in a live environment, yeah, you know, you can start with four mics and do a Jim Keltner kicks there to overheads. You know, it, it it's a, it's a different world. The information is available out there through, you know, guys like you and me giving this information away. Mm-hmm. It's available for people to do this now. And I love it because there's something I should have said right at the beginning, and it's the most important thing. The only thing that's important in music is not the frequency response of this or the distortion of that or the clipping of this or the clean or the the only thing that's important is creativity. That's the
0: only thing that's important. That interaction as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause when I I I used to teach at this school in San Francisco called Pyramind, and I would have students always say, So what's the what's the right setting for the comp- for a compressor on name the instrument or the e, or the right EQ setting? I'm like, the answer is it all depends. How does it sound? Does it sound good? Exactly. That's the answer. <laughs> I, I just was always like I, I don't know, I let's find out what this sounds like and we'll go from there. They're, and they're always like, huh, so there's not a clear cut answer? I'm like, no. Yeah, not.
1: I would, I always get the kids at work, at work for me say, how do you tune vocals? And I have done a video on showing how to tune vocals graphically and auto tune, because I think that you know there's certain technical things that people need to understand. But ultimately, the way you tune vocals is you listen for a note to be too far out of tune for you to bear, and then you tune it and you only and you only do that because you just say i love this performance i love the way that the singer went ah you know hit this note but it's out of tune it's the best performance so i'm going to tune it otherwise performance first tuning second always you know go for the best performance you know the records that we that we love and are considered to be the greatest records of all time the pitch is not the number one reason why we love those records
0: no doubt
1: but, you know, it's, it goes back to that, you know, I was talking about the David Berger book, The Ways of Seeing. It's about ways of hearing. It's about having the ability to stand back as a producer and know when something is good or bad. I, I, I say this often in interviews, but I worked with Dave Jordan in 98, 99, and Dave had done like, you know, the Jane's Addiction records and Alice in Chains and had engineered the Stones and Herbie Hancock, Rocket, and a whole bunch of talking heads remaining like worked on some of the best sounding records ever. And I, I, I was, we were having these philosophical discussions that we do. And he said to me, you know, sometimes you have to get in to a song and rip it apart and rewrite it and change the key and change the tempo and, you know, pull out the bridge and pr- whatever, do all these drastic changes. And other times you just have to get out of the way of the artist and help facilitate them making a great recording. The Mm -hmm. skill is knowing when to do those things. Dave is a very inspirational guy. He's very, he's, he's very, uh, 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 he's got a stupid IQ. And and so he's, he can go off onto stuff that we we had. He and I once had a discussion about, um, all the alias frequencies and quantization, all this kind of stuff. And he started just getting into an area that I really was like, (laughs) you know, but he's stupidly smart. So that's why he goes there as a, producer when people people um will send me a a piece of music and it might be a heavy rock song or a country song or a dance track and they say can you do this and my response is yes i don't mind if it's edm or you know death metal it's music and if it's if i'm passionate about it and i can bring something to it then i can do it and the reason why i think that 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 prevails is because there are guys that have a skill set so they're a dance producer or they're a country guy or a heavy rock guy and they have almost a template in the way that they do music they've worked with all these different you know quote-unquote producers and they go into the studio and the producer goes okay you go in and play the drums and the guy goes in and plays the drums and then they grid the drums and then they put in all their samples exactly the way that they want to hear it and they go now you play the bass and the guy plays the bass and then they edit it this way and then and they do this system that works for the way that their template is set up and the way that they they're experienced doing it and then artists come to me and they're all nervous because they're like do you know how to produce music that isn't just the way that you do things do you only have one and and they don't know they're asking that question but that's the question they're really asking because they just feel like is it possible but then we look at like my favorite band, you know, beyond like the Beatles and the Stones and Zeppelin and Floyd and the Who, my favorite band, frankly, is Queen. I'm English, so I grew up on Queen like most kids in England. And I put on a Queen album like The Game. What's the genre of The Game? Uh, boy. Exactly. Uh, crazy, oh, boy. <laughs> crazy exactly. Little, crazy little thing called Love, like a 50s rock and roller. Massive hit single. Um, another one by dusk, a disco track. So two completely different things, both massive hits. From the same band, the same engineer, and the same producer. And then there's Save Me, which was another massive hit, which is more traditional, huge harmonies. Then there's a track called Dragon Attack, which is like, which is almost like a heavy rock. It's like this insane track. There is no genre on that record. It's just a whole bunch of great songs, like 10 amazing great songs, and doing what's best for the song. But it was the same musicians, the same drummer you know, whatever, the same players, the same engineer, the same producer. I think that a lot of that mentality may have come from the 90s, you know, when you used to buy albums in the 90s and have the one hit song. And then there was nine songs that sounded like versions of the one hit song.
0: And yeah, they were like mediocre versions of the of the hit. Yeah, because the one single would
1: sell 20, you know, whatever, 2 million albums, because people weren't buying singles, they were buying
0: albums. Dragon Attack, That I think that was the B-side to Another One Bites the Dust on the 45 that I had. Probably, I the, yeah. Up. And I would pl- I would play Another One Bites the Dust backwards. Nice. Because I, I think it sounded like it said, decide to smoke marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, it was the day of, of like backward masking was making the news. I was like, oh, what does this sound like? Oh, that's cool. <laughs>
1: oh, that's funny. <laughs> I had a conversation about this yesterday. You know, like 79 to like 81 are like the most ignored news in music because, you know, in England, we had punk rock in 76 and 77. We had New Wave in the early 80s. And everybody forgets that like 79 to 81, we had Scary Monsters by David Bowie, which is one of the greatest albums ever made in the history of music. I would go down fighting on that one. We had The Game, which is like Queen's kind of like Finest moment for me, you know, beyond, um, you know, An Eye of the Opera, just because, again, it was so diverse and four hit singles and just great songs and great production, you know, mixing organic instruments with synths and everything and just a great record. You had uh, you know, Glass Houses, Billy Joel. You had The River. I mean, all of these <laughs> all of these albums yeah. came. And we're all like, if you, if you said to somebody 1980, they go, oh, it was a crappy year. It's like, dude, The Clash put out record, you know. Yeah. yeah. Go and look at the top forty selling albums in 1980. Your jaw will drop. Every single one of them is a great record. And then look at last year and tell me one record that stands shoulder to shoulder with any of those.
0: The, yeah, well, there there was a lot of very talented people doing a lot of uh, great. I mean, that's funny you said when you say Glass Houses. I could totally see the record cover of Billy Joel.
1: Oh yeah, what a great song, album. You know, I mean, right in the middle. I remember being you know. Th- 13, 12 11 whatever it came out i just remember being like wow and i got into it cuz this girl i was just discovering girls this girl which was a, my my like my best friend's older sister liked it so i bought it and i but i remember like also like vis- visage like vienna you remember that song mm-hmm. this means nothing to me oh vienna dun, 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 dun. it's just like this insane piece of like programming all about the vocal just a song it's a simple drum beat with a synth going on in the background but just all about this melody and this vocal mid from ultravox oh yeah yes mid from ultravox just wailing and it's like that whole period like you know eurythmics put out sweet dreams then I remember oh, yeah. hearing Sweet Dreams and every hair on my arm stood up like, what is this music? But came then in also, like, but also in 19, uh, around 1980,
0: 1981, uh, new wave of British heavy metal was, was- Oh yeah, I loved all that too. I mean, like, I Saxon, mean, Iron Maiden. Seeing Iron Maiden on MTV when I was like 10, 11 years old, I was like,
1: oh my God. So I'll sum up my personal opinion. What was so great about those times? Nobody was afraid to write songs. Nowadays, young hip bands are afraid to write choruses, that are what they call, it's too pop. They'll say to me, that's too pop. It's like, but you, you it's like, who, who's the cool, one of the coolest bands that ever lived? The Cure. One of The Cure's biggest songs. <laughs> Love Cats. You know, I mean, it's like, boys don't cry. I mean, they're all songs that you sing along with. If you want to be a young, hip band, write a song as good as Robert Smith did. You know what I mean? It's like, those are great, great songs. And I do think though, I'm listening to Sirius, like Alt Nation now. I'm enjoying that some of the younger bands are coming up and they're embracing songwriting again. They're embracing melody and hooks because that is what's going to last. Not just like, you know, the cool drum sound or the cool this sound or whatever. It's going to be songs that we'll be talking about in another 20 years like we're talking or 30 years like we're talking about the songs from 30 years ago now that's what differentiated those bands they weren't afraid to write big songs
0: and some bands are scared they're just scared of their own shadow uh, when you say when you, oh that's too pop well that's too commercial or that's it's like well the, uh, i don't know if you've read um uh mixer man's book the uh zen and the art of mixing he talks about he talks about some indie bands, and he says something like some of these indie bands that want to completely bury the vocal so we can't hardly understand what's going on, maybe we would know who they are if they just raise the level of the vocal enough for us to understand the lyrics or something to that effect and yeah, I mean, the number one thing in every song that
1: I want to produce is the vocal. it really is it's all about the vocal i i I put up a video yesterday where i i I showed tons of different techniques that i do on a vocal i put like a light whisper track i put a low octave in there i'll put some distortion i put different reverbs and delays and i blend them all to suit depending on the vocalist and there's literally like 12 or 13 different things that i do and just to treat the vocal in different ways and sometimes i'll use a lot of something sometimes i'll use nothing sometimes whatever and somebody said to me isn't that making all the vocals sound the same because you're using the same tricks i'm like and then i sort of Wrote down these sort of fifteen different things that I choose from. <laughs> well, if that's if that's doing it all sound the same by blending fifteen different ideas in different ways, and I, I'm just trying to give the information out there. You know, um, I just want people to know because I sat in the rooms with Michael Brower and Crystal algae mixing my stuff. I've been in the rooms with Mark Ender and Andy Wallace and. You know, and these are things that I picked up over the years, and I just want to be like, I don't see what's wrong with everybody knowing what we do to make this stuff. And to be honest, most of the kids that I'm sending me mixes, like I said, if they're not doing that, they're doing other really cool things because I get I got some great great mixes back.
0: We'll have to make sure and uh, include your YouTube channel in on the Working Class Audio page. But thank you. So two two things I want to ask you about. Number one. Um, what are the extracurricular activities you do to enhance your musical lifestyle? Uh well, the ex- or or tra- like you talked about ear training. What are the yep. extra things beyond just being in the studio working that others should, you know, seems like you immerse yourself in all aspects and you really try to stay stay sharp. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm pretty obsessive. I'm
1: I'm I'm sure that's a good thing and a bad thing. Ask my wife. I'm sure your wife says the same thing. I'm pretty obsessive about this stuff. I will fall to sleep doing ear training exercises on my app all the time. So there are several apps. They're all good. And just doing basic solfage is really good. You know what solfage is? Oh, so, you, okay. so what you do is you learn, you learn to apply those notes so you can move them from key to key. Um, that's a really good talent. There's actually a sulfage app on the market. All these apps are like a couple of bucks, of course. I play other instruments that I'm not that good at. I play drums. I have a drum kit set up. So when I get any kind of time, like this morning, if I wasn't talking to you, I might be playing drums for half an hour. And I'm I'm a guitar player, bass player, piano player, drummer in that order. You know, I'll probably spend a little bit more time playing drums and I'll play a little bit more piano. I have a guitar in my hands almost every second of the day, like I said, I need to know the song. If we're working on a song and we're working on the harmonies at one point, I'm already in the song. We've, we know the harmonies.
0: Mm-hmm. If I
1: have to go in and replay the guitar part, it's fine, because I already know that it's F sharp minor D, whatever. It's imperative to me to understand and be in the zone with the song I'm working on. So my actual work process is always part of a learning process. And then the other thing to touch on the learning aspect is, I learn more from artists than they ever learn from me. Every day, an artist comes in and asks me to do something that I've not done before. And I think if you're not learning, and you're just one of these guys, you know, putting out videos on YouTube, ranting about the right way to do thing and and the right way, then what this is, you know, if you're one of those guys, then you know you you're, you're in the wrong game because this is a learning experience. Because music is about creativity and innovation. And it's always young people coming up and doing something twisted and young. There's a band called Wolf Alice that are kind of a cool young hit band um, from England at the moment. I love them. And they're kind of like Nirvana with a girl, but not, you know, but they do progressive rock versions of it. They're kind of like progressive rock meets grunge with a girl singer. Hmm. It's, I mean, it's like, who would have put all those things together? I mean, one of their singles, and I'm blanking on the name, I first heard of, I don't know six months ago, and I believe you'll love this. It's well over a minute before any vocals come in, and it's mm. successful, and kids yeah. like it. Wow, so, that's
0: that's very uh, that's kind of like a Pink Floyd song. It's
1: great. I mean, I, I often tell people if you were to put me on a desert island and give me you know 10 songs to choose from, you know, there'd be a couple of Queen in there, but it'd also be a couple of like King Crimson tracks and stuff in there. I, I like. Mm prog rock from England and from the late 60s, early 70s. Um, I like classical music and I like jazz. You know, I grew up in a family of a lot of classical music. Um, I like music that challenges me on all levels. I have a hard time accepting only one thing. Yeah, it's got a good groove, but whoop de frick and died you know, give me more, give me a good groove, great melody. And even if the lyric is simple, simple is great, but make it a lyric that's just compelling.
0: You, know? you should check out Bill Bruford's autobiography. It's quite, quite interesting. I'd love to. I'm a huge bruford fan. I saw, yeah. I've seen King Crimson in
1: different incarnations over the over the years. I saw it with uh, Bruford and I'm blanking on the other drama and the rollout Albert Hall many years ago.
0: Um. So the the wrap up question here is: Please, you you're in a studio at your home. You're surrounded by a shit ton of gear that you've accumulated over the the course of your career. At this point in time. What is your gear buying philosophy as it relates to spending money? Do you c- just continue to accumulate gear? Do you try to sell off what's not, what hasn't been used? What, what are your thoughts about, about gear? And, and also, what are your thoughts about managing <clears throat> your money and gear? Yeah, that's a, that's, wow, that's a big question.
1: we got another hour? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is a big question. I'm still learning, so I'm still... I'm still finding out new things. I have a plethora of all of the, you know, and I'm doing the inverted fingers, right equipment. I'm also finding that I get it. I use it. I love it. And then I find something else that might be better than it. Nothing seems to beat transformers and then tubes in that order in a lot of circumstances. So the new tax that Steve Jackson's making, which are like, you know, as you know, use the original, everything. They're exactly original. Something that I, I cling on to, but they are very expensive, I think, if you're up and coming. But if I'm going to get a couple of choice pieces, they'll probably be, of all the expensive equipment I have, mm-hmm. between that and my BAE mic pre, maybe one or two of my BAE mic pre's, those will be the last two things I would sell. So, if I wanted to downgrade, not downgrade, but if I wanted to get rid of a lot of equipment, I would keep an SM57 because that's my guitar, that's my snare top, that's pretty much everything. One really nice condenser. That's a tough one. I, I, I do love my Neumann, but I could probably get away with that Lewitt LCT 550. It's about 500 bucks, 600 bucks. And probably a pair of my Poltec EQs, which I can put on my Master Bus. I can use going in on pretty much any instrument it just adds a nice warm transformer slash you know extra harmonics from the the tubes but that transformer warmth and, and that second third harmonic sparkle that the tubes give once you've learned to love that and appreciate it it's pretty hard to get rid of but that's only like four or five pieces of equipment so it's nice I have I have a bunch of ribbon mics and it's nice to be able to go like I have an AEA ribbon on my piano. I have an old Baldwin upright which I got for free and you could probably find you know on Craigslist for a 100 bucks. Pianos usually, and
0: pianos and kittens on are free. Yeah.
1: Free or very cheap. Yeah. Usually please come and pick them up and you can have them for free. That's usually right. what it says in Craigslist. Come get these kittens <clears throat> and we'll give you the piano. Yeah, exactly. Just have some way of Taking this piano and we'll give you kittens and vice versa. Uh, Yeah, and so it's nice. The ribbon um, gives the piano a very unique feel. Um, But could I stick an SM57 on it and get another cool piano sound? Yeah, of course I could. I'm blessed to have a lot of equipment that I've accumulated over 20 plus years. Um, But there's only a handful of things that I could never do without. And I think if you're an up-and-coming guy and you've got a laptop, And a DAW that you know really well, and you have a prerequisite to work hard and relate to artists and bring out performances and care about what they have to say to you, then all you're going to need is one really nice mic pre and two microphones. And probably either an 1176 or a distressor if you know how to use it. Be careful. Distressors can destroy. But a distressor with a little bit of knowledge is an amazing compressor because it does A 160 VU sound. It does, close enough at least, it does a close enough 1176 sound. It does all of the things that you want it to, and it's just one compressor. I could probably get away with an SM57, the Lewitt 550, a Distressor, and a BAE
0: 1073. Excellent. And when you see new gear come out now, do you go, ooh, maybe I should get that? I think the innovation in new gear is not the high-end stuff.
1: It's the mid-level stuff and the cheaper stuff. The innovation now is companies like the microphone company. I don't want to keep plugging them, but I mean, they're great. But those kind of companies that are trying to create a buzz by building really high quality microphones at a fraction of the cost. That's where the innovation is. Mm-hmm. So for a guy like you or I that maybe have a lot of expensive gear, one of the things that it might do for me is go, well, you know what? I have a pair of really expensive Neumanns and I only use one. I might as well sell that second one because this microphone that costs 600 bucks sounds pretty darn close to me. And if I ever need a second mic, I could take the $10,000 that I'm going to get from this vintage microphone and buy a 600 buck one. So <laughs> that's where we're probably looking at, you know, the the innovation that's happening is not so much in the high end stuff because the high end stuff is the high end stuff. Yeah. You know, there's benchmarks. A Poltec is a Poltec. That is the sound of transformer, and you know, um tube valve equipment. That is the sound of passive EQs that doesn't screw with the phase, doesn't mess up the polarity, that adds a shimmer and a bottom end to something. That is that is to me is 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 as good as it gets. And what used to be the problem was, and the reason why I used to use the Lindcraft and the manly stuff was because you could buy a Poltec and it was 40 years old and falling apart. And you'd have to spend a lot of money to get it back up and running really well. Um, so you always have to buy the alternatives. But now, they're remaking them exactly the way they were. So if if I want to get a Poltec, I get that. So the innovation now is going to be the guy that maybe can make a piece of equipment that sounds just as good, but at a fraction of the cost.
0: Yeah, that seems manufacturers in their, uh, I don't know if it's trying to capitalize on, on a vintage market, but I mean, I once again, in the latest sound on sound, they were talking about Neumann uh, reissuing the FET forty seven and doing it, or not, not, and, and not recreating it, but recommissioning the original plans so that they're making it a, a new FET forty seven as compared to an old FET forty seven. They're made in an identical fashion. How much are they going to sell them for? I think they were three, three thousand. I think I'd have to look again. How contentious is your uh, show usually? Not very, but
1: why? I love a fair forty seven. I, I love it. I use it on kick when I'm in, you know, Sunset Sound or United or one of those incredible studios. I love it on the kick. I love it on bass guitar. I was making the second Frey record and we were in Denver and we bought a lot of amazing equipment. They bought to check deck out their studio. We made that whole second record almost entirely in their studio. And they bought this API sixteen oh eight console, which was wonderful when it just came out brand new in like two thousand eight right and we but we ended up renting a lot of stuff and the fet 47 was great and we loved it and but we only had rented one and so we were moving it around from the kick to the bass, the kick to the bass. but most of that record was recorded essentially live and then fixed you know come in and do some fixing guitars it's a it's not a live record but the records we made their records their first and second records by having a band play and then do some overdubs. So essentially the bass and the drums and the rhythm guitars and even some of the pianos on some songs were off the floor in the way that you and I grew up making records. Mm -hmm. Even though it was the mid-2000s, we were doing it like that. So we only had one Fet 47. So it was moving around. It was sounding fantastic. Um, I'll make this quick. Uh, About the year before, they had been on a world tour to promote their first album, and they'd come to me and they'd asked me to put together a wish list of equipment that they could take on the road. And use, you know, backstage. And I put together a Pro Tools rig. And we actually put together a little HD rig, but we didn't go for the super expensive equipment. You know, apart from a little mini HD rig, we got them. Um, what I did is I chose an Audio
0: Technica. What's the mm-hmm. Audio Technica like U87? It's like a 4050, maybe. Uh, is that right? The, yeah, I would say that that would be the, the, the equivalent from them.
1: So it's like an 800-butt microphone. I remember it being about $800. Yeah, about that, yeah. So anyway, you know where I'm going. So I took the kick drum mic, I put it on the bass. I took the bass, I put it on the kick. I'm like, oh, shit, sounds great, sounds wonderful. This isn't going to work. Try different mics. And so I'm like, wait there. In your touring rig, didn't you get an Audio Technica bloody blah, blah, blah? So sure, so the, 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 the assistant who also did their monitors, who was assisting me, ran off, grabbed the microphone, we put it on the kick drum mic, Ben started playing, we pulled it up, we went, this sounds awesome. We then compared it to the Fet 47, which also sounded awesome. Did it sound more awesome? No. Did it sound $2,200 more awesome? Didn't sound, A, it didn't sound more awesome. And B, it didn't sound $2,200 $2, more awesome. So that's the reason why I, like you, I'm a big purveyor of, I love the old gear. I've accumulated 20 years of the old gear. I think it's fantastic. But I'm here to tell you, there's great manufacturers out there making incredible affordable equipment.
0: Well, I I do not endorse uh, Audio Technica per se. I would love a deal with them in some capacity, but I have to say objectively that Audio Technica I'll make a car comparison. It may not be a Mercedes or a BMW, but, but it's a it's, Lexus. But it's well, I'll even go as far as saying and this it could it could even be better than this. I drive a Honda. I think it's the Honda microphones. It gets you there. It does the job and it does it at a fraction of the cost. I think it's Alexis. I think, okay. it's, a, I think it's Alexis because what it is, you, you know, when you're in a studio
1: in England, I don't know if you recorded when you were in England. I did. Um, yeah. Britannia uh, row. Okay, great. Yeah. And I've, 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 I was blessed to record at Olymp, Olympic when it was still there. And I've done some stuff at Abbey road and, and I've been very blessed as a musician. Um, primarily I was recording in those days and, and, and a lot of other metropolis, a lot of those studios that don't exist anymore. Um, and I remember nobody, nobody in England had any qualms about using Audio Technica and biodynamic microphones in every situation that we in America think that a Neumann or an AKG could be on. And I love Neumann microphones and I love AKG microphones. I had two C12s, I have 47s. I am blessed. However, I'm not an
0: idiot. When it sounds good, it sounds good. And, and when you can spin less to make it sound good, yeah. to me, that's that's the the smart economic choice.
1: Yeah, and I like the I like the LCT 550 because I have a pair of them and they match. And I love my vintage microphones, but they're in a single vintage microphone. I have a pair of that sounds anything like each other. So when somebody tells me that, you know, the new Vista or the EF, whatever, is the best sounding mic, I'm like, you know what? I went, I've been in the record plant with three U47s, all of them had the right tube in them. All of them sounded completely and utterly different. And all mm. of them had been cleaned and maintained and whatever. So, and I'm not talking slightly different. I'm talking completely different. Radically different. Radically different. And I was just in a studio the other day, and we had three U67s that we were using for overheads. So I had to figure out all of these beautifully main, maintained U67s, how I was going to position them all. And so- Vintage is vintage, um, you know uh, Jim Scott had that RCA Neve console completely rebuilt. And when I asked him, you know, did he worry about you know putting brand new components in an old thing? He just sort of kind of laughed. He goes, "I used this console when it was new. It just sounds like it did when it was new." Most people's, he was telling me, most people's idea of vintage equipment means not working as well anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I want to get that dark vintage sound. What do you mean? It isn't passing signal as well as it used to? (laughs) I mean, you know, warm. I love warm equipment. (laughs) But, you know, the reason why Poltecs are warm is because they have these big transformers on them. The reason why, you know, the VAE recreations of uh, 312s and 1073s, the reason why I like them is because they're brand new equipment using the original components, original Carnhill transformers. That's why they sound good, but they're... The company, Carnhill, is the same company as St. Ives, and they still exist, and they still make them the same way. They just changed the name, but they use the same machines. So you, I can buy that using the same equipment. And so why would I go and buy a vintage piece of equipment that I'm going to have to rebuild and revamp to make it sound as good as this brand new piece of equipment made to exactly the same specs at a fraction of the cost? So I can buy this for 2000 or I can buy the vintage one for 4000
0: Hmm, let me think about that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I you like warrant. I like warranties. Yeah,
1: I like warranties too. <laughs> and, and and this day and age is when when you know the budgets are not a million dollars an album, you know, there's not money to fly around and make decisions based on snobbery. We have to make decisions based on logical stuff. You and I have families to feed. So we're doing this and we have to like you were saying, you have we have to go okay, I don't like buying the cheap imitations. Don't get me wrong. I, 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 I'm not going to knock any particular cheap ones, but there's ones that use like a tube. They throw a tube in, or they use a, a Chinese-made transformer and say it sounds like it. Well, as you and I know, we, we could review some of that stuff. Maybe, maybe you and I should get together and do reviews together. It'd be fun because I think we have honest <laughs> perspective. We have honest perspective. I'm being yeah. serious. We should because we have an honest perspective because. You you know I, I'll talk about the BAE and the Lewitt stuff. You know why? Because I use it because it's made, it's cheaper, but it does the same job as the vintage stuff. So that's the reason why I use it. I think that there's just a common misconception, and I really want to help people coming up, especially as a guy that has some of the vintage stuff, a lot of the vintage stuff. I don't always rely on it. You know, I I I, I want it to. I want to be able to recall things the same. And I think the reason why a lot of us are moving you know away from traditional consoles and probably eventually I may will move away is because plugins are getting better there's good line amps coming up now you know there's good um submixes coming out um and there's ways of doing what what we want to hear at a fraction of the
0: cost just to wrap up i i do want to thank you for being on the show
1: thank you i what what you're doing is fantastic and you're doing great work bringing you know bringing all this knowledge
0: to people when I make another trip to L.A. down from the Bay Area, I'll, uh, I'll hit you up and we'll we'll go drink some coffee or some tea for you. PG tips for you.
1: I am a, I'm a coffee and a tea drinker. and that, that's I'm tea total, so that works out perfect. Excellent.
0: All right, Warren, well, you, you have a good session today. Thanks very much. Talk to you later? Talk to you later. All right. Thanks a lot, mate. Bye-bye. All right, another great interview down. Mr. Warren Hewitt here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. That's all the time we have for today. Hey, I want to start giving credit where credit is due. Music, of course, is provided by Cliff Truesdale. Vocal intro there by Chuck Smith. And social media and additional audio assistance is provided by our friend Cole Williams. That's it for Working Class Audio Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,